and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So this week, we're talking with Molly Lambert. Yep. Who is a writer I like a lot, and she just wrote the introduction to I Used to Be Charming, The Rest of Eve Babbitt's. Tell me about your relationship to Eve Babbitt's. Years ago, someone told me I should read Eve Babbitt's. So then I started with Eve's Hollywood, which wasn't in print at the time. How did you find it? I just got it from the library. Oh. Yeah. So it wasn't very, very <laughs> it wasn't smart. much of a hunt. <laughs> but then I became obsessed with the idea that I wanted to start a press and republish Eve Babbitt's myself. So somehow I got her phone number and I would call her like occasionally and um, often it was just a machine. But once she picked up and I was so excited, I said, hello, Eve. And then she just hung up. <gasps> wow. Which I know like I've heard lots of other people have had the same experience. Uh-huh. So it's not like it's that unique. And I met a friend of hers and there are more angles I could have pursued. I kind of let it go. Why did you let it go? Well, just I didn't end up really starting the press and maybe I didn't quite know what to do. I mean, I, I met a friend. The friend said she'd help me out. I, maybe I followed up once with her. I, I could have gone way more undercover if I really would have. And look, this was obviously for the New York Review of Books, like it was a goldmine to, to publish Eve Babbitt's because she's such a charming, wonderful writer and she's having this amazing resurgence. So alas, I should have yeah. probably worked harder. But I guess do? for readers who have not heard of Eve Babbitt's, we should say that she's an, a Los Angeles-based writer. She wrote, Mostly in the 60s and 70s. Mm, yeah, yeah, mostly yeah. in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Right, until she had an accident in 1997, which is one of the essays that's actually included in this collection. It's about this accident that she had where she accidentally lit her skirt on fire. Yeah. Wow, I did not know that my question about Eve would elicit such a response. Yes, well. Did you have a plan about what you would say to her when you called if she picked up? Mm. I mean, probably not. I'm sure I would mm-hmm. just say, I, I love your books and I think they should be back in print and I want to publish them. We should say she's, and we discussed this in the interview with Molly, she's sort of a recluse. She's really retreated from public life. She has, except she will do events here and there. And mm-hmm. I saw her at the Hammer Oh, um, a couple years ago, after mm-hmm. which I heard that she hitchhiked home, even though there was a car waiting for her. She's an amazing <laughs> character, but it's true. I, she's not around like, because she used to be very around in her, all her right. writing. She was a, a scenester. And now I don't think she's that, but she's a legend. Yeah, she's a LA legend. Mm-hmm. And it was it was fun to talk to Molly about these fantastic essays that are so easy, fun, but very smart. And finally back in print for everybody to read them. Yeah. Okay, let's talk to Molly. Great. Molly Lambert in the studio with us today. Molly Lambert is a writer from Los Angeles, and she was actually born in Hollywood. She has written for publications like the New York Times Magazine, and she co-hosts her own podcast. It's called Night Call, so we have a pro in the building, which is nice for a change. I mean, aside from us. And (laughs) she is here to discuss a new collection of essays by Eve Babbitts. The collection is called I Used to Be Charming. It's the rest of Eve Babbitts, and Molly wrote the introduction for this collection. And Eve Babbitts is an iconic Los Angeles writer, I would say. She's the author of several books of fiction, including Sex and Rage, Advice to Young Ladies Eager for a Good Time, L.A. Woman, and Black Swans Stories. 
Her nonfiction works include Fiorucci, the book, and Two by Two, Tango, Two Step, and The LA Night. She has written for a number of publications. And this book, I Used to Be Charming, The Rest of Eve Babbitts, actually collects her journalism and the many different short pieces that she wrote throughout her career. Thank you so much, Molly, for coming. Thank you for having me. It's a lengthy introduction. Great to be here. I think we wanted to start off with a reading. I'm going to read from All This and the Godfather 2, which is the essay that opens the collection. It is about Eve following around the crew of the Godfather as Coppola makes the Godfather. So this is part four of the essay, and it's called The Godfather Part Five. They were in Reno first, then Las Vegas, then Hollywood. Then it was, do you want to go to Santo Domingo? I heard that they had to keep the stars locked in safes at night so they wouldn't be stolen as hostages. And that 22-year-old female crew member who'd been remarkably pure of heart when shooting began was now under the influence of Santo Domingo, drinking with the grips. That Al Pacino was sick there. That people were coming down with a local bug which only a doctor examining one's stools could detect. Well, no, I didn't want to go to Santo Domingo. But then they said, you want to go to New York and go to the Gatsby party? Santo Domingo, no. Gatsby, see. New York was part five. It was about a week before the end of March. My mother had been in New York two weeks before and described it as balmy, a description which I bore in mind as I packed. As it turned out, it was my mother who was balmy. New York was troublesome and horrendous, as crazy as it was overwhelming, and as cold as it had been eight years ago when I had left vowing never to return unless I had a suite at the plaza in my own personal limousine. My relationship with Fred Roos, struck up in the usual way that any of Fred's alliances for progress are struck up, was decided when he realized that he could stand me and thought I'd come in handy, and besides, I went to Hollywood High. The Hollywood High Mafia. He's the one who showed me a photograph of the time Hollywood beat Hamilton High at baseball. It's been all downhill since then, he explained. It's difficult to make Fred Roos laugh, but once you're on his A-list, you're allowed to once, sometimes twice a day. We're also allowed to make him furious. Cold, empty, long pauses on the telephone. His A-list, besides me, includes Cindy Williams, Harry Dean Stanton, Monty Hellman, a guy named Brooks he was in Korea with, and the newest member, whom Cindy and I insisted on for two hours one night at Tana's, Ed Begley Jr. Jack Nicholson, too, is one, and so is Mariana Hill. I'm the only one besides this guy named Lloyd, Fred's truest friend, the one who goes to basketball games with him, who is not really in the movie business, and his mother. When are you coming to New York, he asked. Like grand guy grand. Fred likes nothing better than to make it hot for people. So it's 12 midnight and he's calling to find out when I am coming to New York and if I can get a taxi in 20 minutes. I can be there by dawn and we can have breakfast. They're shooting the 1918 street scenes, he added. Robert De Niro is in it. And your friend Bruce Kirby. And Francis wants to talk to you about that magazine. And we're all going to the Gatsby party. Lots of good eats. Party, I said. A party? Yeah, we're all going, after the Gatsby premiere. Are we going to the premiere? No, a private screening. What if I come tomorrow? Just say what time, he said, and things will get rolling. My book had just come out a week before, and a friend of mine had written a review of it in the Los Angeles Times that was so violently opposed to me in general, and my book in particular, that I'd run immediately to the Los Palmas newsstand to get a Tucson paper to look for a job as a waitress. Suddenly, cooling it in New York seemed like a sensible thing to do. Thank you. I'm so glad you chose that piece to read because to me, this piece is like the most, I mean, I love a lot of the pieces in here, but this is like the most like all out 
just mind-boggling piece to me because it combines so many different things. It's so great. And to me, like, what is so great about Eve's journalism and what really just, you know, made her so amazing to me is, like, I felt like I'd always been looking for, like, who is the female new journalist that, like, I haven't heard of and who probably is out of print because I was always a fan of new journalism of, you know, Gay Talese's Frank Sinatra Has a Cold and all the sort of famous things of that ilk of like underground papers and mainstream versions of that, you know, Tom Wolfe and stuff. So I was always like, there's got to be female versions of this. And, you know, the one person who really does get read from that period who's a woman is Joan Didion, who is, you know, a colleague and a friend of hers, who's very serious, obviously. but you know, Eve Babbitt's work had largely fallen out of print until this sort of recent revival that came about from sort of a number of people, I think, at the same time, discovering this and thinking it should be reprinted. I was actually curious, do you know how, because it seemed like all of a sudden, maybe two or three years ago, she well, was kind of back there in was, people's um, bookshelves. The book written by Lillian Olick, she wrote a piece for Vanity Fair about Eve because she was very obsessed with Eve. I read Eve because Emily Gould's mm. online ebooks thing that she and her friend Ruth Curry started, Emily Books, that was one of the people that they reprinted because they were sort of dedicated to republishing a lot of sort of underread or unrepublished female authors, especially. Mm-hmm. And Emily had said to me, Oh, you know, I think you would really dig Eve Babbitt. She's such a great writer. She makes me think LA is cool, you know? And so, yeah, as soon as I did, I was just like, oh, where has this been all my life? So what's the hallmark to you of her style? Like, what is so memorable about her to different? She's very funny and fun to read. It's just very, like, exhilarating to read her. And she is sort of covering a lot of partying type stuff, especially in this piece, in a way that's very intellectual and that's very incisive and observant you know she's at all these events but it's like she's taking notes the whole time and paying very close attention to the dynamics of power especially and she's around a lot of powerful men who she is very good at sort of navigating because she doesn't suck up to them the way everybody else does and that's what also makes the pieces good they're not puff pieces she's very tough on Coppola especially in this piece and makes him sound very goofy at times, but it's like done in a loving way. It's also not like a hit piece at all. Well, there's a familiarity. It's kind of striking that I don't encounter that much anymore, that she's obviously friends with a lot of the people she writes about. You yeah, know? it's very insidery, but in a way that like lets you in and mm-hmm. invites you to be part of the insideriness. It says, oh, we're at this party now with Jack Nicholson and Ed Begley Jr., but you know, you're here too. Yeah. As you say in your introduction, she pulls off something that's extremely difficult when you're writing is that she makes it all seem very easy, kind of California breezy. Like she's just... Yes. And one of the things that got asked at the event I did was whether she was really a dedicated editor also mm-hmm. of those pieces and whether she wrote and rewrote a lot. And her sister Mirandi said, oh, absolutely. The sort of illusion of this is a first draft is part of the trick of it, that she was obsessively writing and rewriting all the time. Oh, that's interesting because it does sort of read like, these are essentially just her notes from the party and thoughts because this the Coppola piece in particular goes to this really interesting place at the end where she thinks back about her time at Hollywood High and the people that came out of that. 
she pulls off this trick where, I mean, the best essayists do this, right? Where they can weave something together that otherwise seem improbable next to each other. But so she moves into this other dimension and this other story with such grace. It's so seamless. Yeah, I think the way that it's arranged as sort of a collection of asides almost Mm -hmm. is obviously purposeful and works so well because it's like she's following along this film production and here are all the different phases of the film, the like excitement about making it and then the sort of being in the weeds of just editing something forever, not knowing if it's going to be any good at all Mm -hmm. and people turning on each other. And it starts with the Gatsby party, which is amazing because it's a party for the movie of The Great Gatsby, which was a flop. And that Coppola wrote the script too, which yeah, I, which I didn't Coppola know. Yeah, wrote the script and it was like a famous flop, but sort of a beautifully shot like nothing and with Mia Farrow and like Robert Redford. Like it sounds it's like it'll be movie. a good movie, you yeah. know? And Eve writes about going to the party after the screening where everybody knows the movie is not going to do well but it's a very fancy party and the food is amazing. And she's just so happy to be there. She's like, the really bad movies have the best parties sometimes. And yeah, it just goes in a lot of places you would not expect it to necessarily go. She goes on this whole tangent about the experience of being like an Italian-American New Yorker transplanted to Los Angeles to shoot a scene for The Godfather and how she can understand why that would be alienating. It just, it appears to ramble, but it does like go back to the same things over and over again. I was wondering, going through this collection, certainly I was thinking a little bit about from an editor's eyes, like, huh, like, where's this going? You know, times where it does seem like if I was an editor, maybe I would like have cut things or I could imagine an editor cutting things. Did it make you reflect at all about like contemporary publications, journalism styles? Like Honestly, that's what I think is the reason that the Eve Babbitt's revival came around. You know, why now? I think a lot of people were saying, and to me, it's like, I think because there were a lot of women writers, myself included, who thought the internet was going to be this like great new venue in which to explore form and in which to explore voice and to sort of get really in the weeds of things like that and like let yourself figure it out, you know, to sort of write yourself into a corner and have to write yourself out of it. And all of my favorite writers of this era have been people like that. But I also think the internet has become increasingly like not a place for that anymore. And so Mm, I think so. Well, just all the good websites have been shut down and people think you can't monetize long form essays as an internet thing. So they don't try anymore. And there's kind of no appreciation for the idea that maybe certain things like that deserve to exist, even if they're not super profitable. You know, I think I always thought personally, as somebody starting out as a journalist on the internet, you know, I thought, okay, I'll like, I started a website with my friend Alex called This Recording as a way to sort of like, yeah, explore my own voice because I wasn't getting other work. And also to be like, here's like an ongoing record of my work that you can see and you can hire me to do other things. But I'm also glad I had this really long period where I was writing things that weren't for hire because what people want for hire, you know, depends on who you're doing it for. And just to sort of have a free space to play in for so long, I think was really cool and formative for a lot of writers of this generation. But I do think that's maybe not as much of a possibility anymore. And so I also, you know, I think people can start independent blogs still, but The idea that I had, which was that blogs would lead to just digital magazines, you know, I don't think that is 
that is definitely not what's happened and I don't think it's going to happen. You know, I just assumed that like print magazines would acknowledge that print was dying and be like, we have to move on to the next thing. And it just took them too long to acknowledge it. They don't want to acknowledge it. So I think a lot of these writers are turning back to print. And I've brought up Gia Tolentino's book of essays a lot. I think a lot of us came up as essayists because that's what the internet works on. And also just reading this collection of Eve's work, a lot of which is for hire and finding the way that she can make anything interesting is so cool. And also always sound like herself. Yeah. Just that voiciness, I think, of a lot of the 60s and 70s writers that are my favorite people. Like, I read a lot of music criticism that was kind of of the same form. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, people like Lester Bangs and Richard Meltzer, people who just were experimenting with form in a way that seemed really interesting and that the internet seemed to lend itself to because it's like there's no constraints. And a lot of Eve's writing feels like, well, once you get rid of the idea that there are constraints, you know, what are you actually going to use to tie all these things together? I also think the Godfather essay is amazing because you could not do it now. You know, I don't think you would ever, A, get such close access to something and B, be allowed to write about it in a way that was at all critical if it was supposed to promote the film, you know? You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Molly Lambert, author of an introduction to a new collection of essays by Eve Babbitts called I Used to Be Charming, The Rest of Eve Babbitts. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Natasha Stagg back here in the studio. Natasha is the author, most recently, of the collection Sleeveless, Fashion Image Media New York, out from Simeo Text. And Natasha is here to recommend a book. Yeah. So I just finished a book by Dennis Johnson called The Name of the World, and I loved it. And I'm slowly trying to read all of his books. Oh, great. So I wanted to recommend this one because I think it's, like one of the least popular. (laughs) I like Dennis Johnson a lot. I've never heard of this one. Yeah, and I picked it up. It's short, which is attractive to me, and it's really beautifully written. I think everything I've read by him is beautifully written, and there's probably been everybody loves him. You know, there's been (laughs) enough said about his style, and he's a poet, and he's a playwright, and he's award-winning, and he's perfect. But I guess this book struck me as... The type of book that I normally wouldn't read, and if it wasn't written by him, I probably would have never read it. Because what is it about? So it's about like a middle-aged widower who has kind of a boring life and was a teacher and worked in right-wing politics and has kind of like this crush on a young student. And it's all these tropes of kind of like the big male writers of the 80s that everybody's kind of sick of maybe (laughs) or at some point everybody was sick of maybe they're back in style now but that cliche of like a writer writing about being retired and having an affair with a young student (laughs) right like that's just so kind of like why would you write that again but the way Dennis Johnson does it is so fantastic and I think 
the way he writes about every character is is so not necessarily trying to get you to like them or not. Like it's just so neutral, but also involved. And I just loved every every sentence. Mm-hmm. And then did you end up liking this? this guy in the end or did no you just, oh, no, I don't no, think no, you're no. supposed to like anybody right. necessarily but but the way these characters are developed I think he writes characters better than anybody and he writes dialogue better than anybody maybe just because it sounds like he really really listens to strangers talking and maybe he knows these people but it, it almost sounds like he doesn't mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. and he's just kind of discovered different parts of these characters by being really attentive. It doesn't feel like he likes them either necessarily. Mm. It's just somebody kind of fleshing out the world. Yeah, he's very good at that. Tell us the title of the novel again. The Name of the World. By Dennis Johnson. Thank you so much, Natasha, for coming back. Thank you. That was Natasha Stagg, author most recently of Sleeveless. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Molly Lambert. And I know that you do so many you know, profiles of celebrities and interviews. Yeah, so just as it relates to your experience, you know, what do you think about it? Oh, I mean, I think doing a profile, it's its own kind of magic trick because it's like you meet somebody for the first time and you become best friends for an hour it's like you're their therapist and like you want to get interesting things out of them but if you just ask them like really nice questions you're not going to get anything interesting you're just going to get like rote answers I think this profile is so interesting because it's of somebody that she knows already and she's sort of like here's how he wants people to see him and here's what he's really like right you know which I think is true of a lot of her profiles of of rock stars who are not all named the Graham Parsons profile. There's a piece about Graham Parsons in one of her books and the Jim Morrison one where she just like makes fun of Jim Morrison in she the most She calls him fat a lot. Loving well, that was way. her lover, right, as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, well, she calls him fat, but it like explains him a lot mm-hmm. because she's yeah. like, he was like a fat military kid and then he got like really hot and he was, but he was always like <laughs> smart and like introspective, you know? Yeah, right. She kind of shows you like even like, she kind of tears down the image always of like, here's what you think this person is supposed to be like. Here's what the great director, you know, wants you to think they're like, that they're walking around, you know, commanding everything. And then being like, Coppola didn't know what shot he wanted ever. Like people had to force him to make decisions, which is like the number one thing you would think a director would be able to do is just like make decisions. That's the job is to be like this, not this, you know, Mm -hmm. and she's like he was so weirdly ill-suited for it in a way because he didn't know what he wanted. He was kind of like shambolic. In a way, it made me be like, Eve Babbitt's should have directed movies, you know? <laughs> yeah, because, well, I mean, you're saying that, you know, what she what she does so definitely is sort of take down the image of the person and show you something that's underneath that. Because at the same time, she is very, obviously very well aware of her own image, I think, as it comes through in the narrative and her own sense of being a writer within this world and that she can very also very deftly construct images of her own. For sure. And I mean, I think 
the title essay in this book, uh, I Used to Be Charming, which is about an accident she had, lighting herself on fire, and then the long and horrible recovery process afterwards is great. And to me, really, the centerpiece of the book, because it is where she takes her own image apart. You know, it's Mm -hmm. where she says, okay, I've been writing all these essays and constructing myself in this way as this like glamorous, carefree, you know, person on a quest for just like good sex and drugs and experiences, you know, and writing about that. But like, I am getting older, like who, what am I doing, you know, after this accident? It's just like she has all this time alone to sort of, you know, criticize herself. And she's Mm. incredibly hard on herself too. She also doesn't let herself off the hook at all, but she does it in a way that's so funny, you know, where she can't, and that's the joke, I guess too, is like, she is so charming. She's very charming. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I wanted to talk about that charm or, you know, that's kind of an intangible quality, um, and it's hard to describe, but like in terms of her charm or you, you know, using charm in your own yeah, work, I mean, how do you, what, how do you think I, of I it? I also like, I honestly think like there is a way in which it's very like Hollywood. It comes out of growing up in, in Los Angeles and Hollywood is this idea that like, if you just do a good enough job, you can construct yourself as both like a sex object and like the protagonist, mm-hmm. you know, which is like every woman's dream, I think is to be like, I'm a sex object, but also like men take me seriously and listen to my opinions. And they do, you know, throughout her, her essays, you know, it's, it's both. Um, And to me, that's very like the sort of Marilyn Monroe thing of like, it is this intangible, like, well, if you're like a sexy, funny woman and you know how to use that as a skill, like it can be an incredibly powerful skill, especially as a journalist, if you're a woman where people are maybe underestimating you or thinking you're not paying attention, you know, that you're just there to get laid and you're not taking notes at the Gatsby party. And so I think she really uses it to her advantage. Yeah. And, and I also think, I mean, it's interesting because you wouldn't notice, it's, it's, it's harder to see the way it works in other essays, which are about m- more, you know, delightful topics, like, you know, or fun, like lighthearted things like, um, bodybuilding or acu- like learning acupuncture, dieting, you know, there's, there's, there's that kind of range that she has. But then in the um, essay about her accident, she's describing really dark, difficult, painful things, but she still, you know, keeps this light touch. Yeah. And she interrogates the light touch. She's like, am I trying to avoid just dealing with like the seriousness of any of this? Mm-hmm. And she sort of admits that she is, but that's, you know, that's her process. And and so this accident that she had um, was in 1997 and she had a skirt on that was highly flammable and a, and a cigarillo fell on it and she, yeah. you know, had these terrible burns. And in Lillian Olick's book, when they talk about that, what they kind of say is like, she actually, there were like a lot of other incidences where that might have happened. They were like, oh, we were always afraid of her falling asleep and like lighting some, lighting her apartment on fire. You know, and so in the essay too, she's kind of like, is this sort of carelessness, just not thinking ahead, you know, how do I reconcile that with actually like, I'm an adult, I can't use my legs right now. Like the reality of this situation is incompatible with like making light of it and still find a way to be funny about it. Ben, do you have any clue as to why after the accident she, she's, I mean, I think another part of 
the resurgence of her is also that the, she has such an amazing myth, which is that she's she's completely, you know, withdrawn or not completely. I know she makes appearances in Los Angeles, but she's very much withdrawn from public life. And I don't think published much since the accident. Do you, did you have any sense, like, in writing this introduction or researching why she stopped writing? I mean, her sister, somebody asked her, her sister that as well at the reading, and she said basically that, like, she was tapped out. She had said everything she felt she had to say, especially after writing the essay about her accident, that that was kind of like the last thing she wanted to write about. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I think the idea, you know, there's just, there's so much work to be, to be read. It's like, I, I don't think anyone is like, we need more. Like right now, you know, I think a lot of male authors too, when they sort of go off and become legendary recluses. Yeah. I think I just, I respect her. I respect her privacy so much that it's like, you know, she wanted to be out. You know, she obviously is on board with the books being republished and everything, but I don't think she wants to be out promoting it, which, you know, is fine. Did you try to meet her? Um, no, because people, you know, told me that 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 wasn't maybe going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you know, yeah, again, I just, I respect it. I just feel like if she wanted to be out meeting people about the books, like she would be doing it. And, you know, I, I also think Lily and Alex's book, which, you know, she did meet with her a lot, um, is really great and reflective of that. But yeah, I think, I think it's also just this idea. It's like we should be able to like honor, you know, great lost women writers while they're alive, you know? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the... New York Review of Books especially is about republishing people who are maybe underappreciated or whose work has fallen out of print, you know, and guess who falls out of print, you know, women and minorities, like that's who need to be republished. And especially in Los Angeles, you know, I I think part of the reason that so much of the writing about Los Angeles is so apocalyptic and depressing is because it does come from People who came here and had a very depressing experience like F. Scott Fitzgerald or Faulkner, you know, the Barton Fink experience of like L.A. is this horrible, depressing, you know, crushing. Like where art goes to die. Yeah, yeah, which is like a fun place to come from because it makes you defensive immediately, you know, to be mm-hmm. like, well, it's not like that. It's not more crushing than any other metropolis. <laughs> it's just a different kind. It's just a horizontal crushing instead of a vertical yeah. Oh, well, actually, this is maybe a question for both of you, as since, Molly, you are a native Angelino, as are you, Kate. How, and, and Los Angeles, we should say for Eve Babbitts, you said Emily Gould said that it sounded cool, like it sounded like she might even want to live here when she reads Eve Babbitts. Yeah. And when I read it, I was like, oh, I'm going to stay here forever. Like, this is the best place in the world. Right. And it's not just an advertisement because it acknowledges a lot of the things about LA that are very extreme and, you know, fucked up, which are part of what make it interesting, but definitely not what make it like great necessarily. You know, I think LA is like a city in conflict with itself all the time. And that is Mm. also what makes it interesting, you know, um, especially now. We're having just such a housing crisis and, you know, I'm obviously pushing with other people to fight to make sure that, like, the artistic class and working class can, like, afford to live here at all, you know, that it doesn't become like New York. Guess what I'm doing after this show, you guys? I'm actually, our building was bought. 
And we were told yesterday that um, we have a meeting today with the new buyers to see what's going to happen. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, so, uh, yeah. This, and this that. is the second time that this has happened to me. Wow. So I'm, I'm just like, we can talk more about this after. The <laughs> yeah. Show, yeah. <laughs> that is insane. Right. And it's just like most of the city is renters. Yeah. I just think mm-hmm. the idea of having like, like an artist's existence in Los Angeles is much harder now. And so it's also the books are to, are to me a record of just like the possibility of that, you know, because she's not a high roller. She's like in these high rollers lives and situations that are fancy, but she's not a fancy person. And she goes home to her like regular apartment all, always from those situations because she's a journalist. Yeah. And just obviously we only have one paper here now uh, and it's the LA Times. So we're just in a huge journalism drought in Los Angeles. That's, I think, what also bums me out is I'm like, oh, I wish we had all these outlets, you know, to write things for, to write fun things and things that are just, you know, about an interesting person. For us? Right for us? Oh my God. For sure. No, I mean, Um, I think there's a wave in Los Angeles of people, especially, you know, I know a lot of people who got laid off from the LA Weekly when mm. they got bought out by a right-wing outlet. So just there's a lot of hungry, angry journalists in Los yeah. Angeles who want to fight for Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, and it's it, there's um in your introduction you mentioned like writing for, you know, that these pieces a lot of them were just writ- like written for these transient publications. They it it was it was a real like normal journalism she didn't expect them to necessarily right. be um archived yeah well i think and, when and you that's write, and that's good yeah i yeah. think when you write with an eye towards greatness it's mm. like it's going to be pedantic and when you write with just trying to like make somebody laugh you know which i think also is like what so much of blogging was is like trying to entertain people at their shitty jobs <laughs> by like making them laugh at their desk mm-hmm. like that's important and valuable People need that. And I also yeah, think... I still know, sometimes go to Gawker oh, and, and remember that it's not there. But I, I think <laughs> that um, that it seems, you know, that you are... So you're a local and that locals... That there's a dearth of... right. There must be a dearth of Los Angeles writers because when they come around and when people seem to know the city, it's like... It feels like such a revelation every time, but there are actually fewer of those than we might think. Well, I think there are a lot of LA writers. And again, I think they just aren't maybe as read or as in print as other people. Um, One person I really love and recommend a lot is Oscar Zeta Acosta, Mm -hmm. who wrote a couple of books and was the lawyer for the... uh, For Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah, he was the guy that the lawyer in Fear and Loathing is based on. But he is actually so much cooler than that. He was a Mexican-American lawyer from Texas. And he came down from San Francisco to L.A. to defend defend the students in the Chicano walkouts. Um, And the reason, this is my favorite L.A. story I get to tell finally. The reason that they went to Vegas for um, Fear and Loathing is because uh, Hunter S. Thompson was doing a story about the Chicano walkouts for Rolling Stone and Oscar Zeta Acosta was being followed and tapped by the LAPD. So they were like, we got to get out of town so the LAPD can't hear us doing the interviews for this story. And Hunter S. Thompson was like, cool, I've got this assignment to write about like a race, a car race in Vegas. Let's go get a room in Vegas and we'll do the interviews for the story. Um, and then it turned into Fear and Loathing. Um, yeah. But they also, he also did the interviews for the story and he wrote the story. Um, it's called Strange Rumblings in Mazatlan, I think, and it was in Rolling Stone. Oh. Uh, 
And again, I'm just like, oh, imagine being able to write about like local LA activism stuff in a national like music magazine. Yeah. Stuff like that. Zeta's uh, book, um, or the one that I've read is The Cockroach The Cockroach People. Is that yeah. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. He's another Revenge person of the Cockroach Revenge People. Revenge of the Cockroach People. That's right. Or Revolt of the Cockroach People. Yes. I think it's Revolt of the Cockroach People. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. Um, he's another person who sort of disappeared himself disappeared. and actually disappeared. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You know, I think also like some of these counterculture writers, it's like they did live the lifestyle that they were writing about. And so some of them did, you know, go to, go too far, not too far, but just, you know, followed the muse all the way to wherever it took them. Yeah. But, you know, just to get the, get the books out there and read again and make this the LA canon instead of Day of the Locust and The Last Tycoon and all, you know, which are good books, but they just represent one facet and just the Hollywood facet, which is really, as you know, like not everything about LA is, mm-hmm. you know, the film yeah. industry. So just to get more of those things out there and my book recommendation will fit into this. Oh, <laughs> Excellent. Um, I'm wondering if you could just talk about some of the other pieces in here and um, if there are any other ones that really grabbed you and what they're about. Oh, I mean, I think it's just all so good. The, the Nicolas Cage one is really great and funny. I like, yeah, I right. love I love the one about how can you live here um, because that's obviously still something you get from people about Los Angeles and it sort of engenders you to think of all the reasons why you do want to live here and, you know, especially if you grew up here and you know it is just a regular place. It's like you know that it has culture but it does make you sort of want to feel like you have to prove it to other people, especially when you find out that people do have these stereotypes about L.A., especially as a stupid place, mm-hmm. which is always so, you know, baffling if you're from here. It's like every place is a stupid place, you know, <laughs> like the levels of dumb people to smart people, I think, are pretty much the same everywhere. Right. <laughs> um, and then my theory is that we displace that here onto Florida, that people in California are like, oh, Florida, that's where everyone's so dumb and they wear bikinis all day. It's just like the same thing. It's right. like you got to have the... She, I, I guess in this book, she was saying that Los Angeles, well, like New York people say, oh, that's so LA. And then LA people say, oh, that's so Vegas. Oh, totally. Yeah. 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 That was yeah. a right. funny yeah. That's just, yeah, it's the same thing. It's everything we say that gets said right. about LA gets said about Vegas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Completely. Yeah, the simulacra. <laughs> how, yeah. Did, how did you guys, well, Molly, how did you think about LA when you were growing up here? What was growing up here like? I wasn't crazy about it because my when parents I- are both from the East Coast and I like internalized the idea that LA was like a like a dumb place and I needed to like be on the east coast with like the intellectuals and then I went to Brown and was like oh like New England is also full of like dummies and like regular people (laughs) they're Um, just like wearing sweaters they're wearing sweaters (laughs) yeah Yeah, but also I was like and it doesn't have like the amazing diversity that like makes Los Angeles such an amazing place to live and yeah I would just like I, I, you know, I was like, oh, I thought of my, I thought I belonged on the East Coast, but now that I'm on the East Coast, I like immediately realize that I'm a West Coast person to my very soul, you know, that I'm like too soft for like really cold weather. Mm-hmm. Actually, my fantasy was that I would be like natural in it, but I am not. I'm like, don't know to dry my hair after a shower and then it like freezes. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> uh, that, that's something I love in the collection too is all these pieces where she go, where Eve Babbitt goes to New York and yeah. she's just like, oh, I can't, I can't be here. But it's I think terrible. that's like every writer 
right. you know, you're told that that's where you have to go to be a writer, especially a journalist, and you obviously don't. And I do think that growing up here with the LA Weekly, when it was good mm. and when it was, uh, you know, I, I just always was like, oh, there are smart people here. Like Jonathan Gold is here, you know, and... So did your parents, when you were growing up, did they make you feel like, Molly, all, the intelligence is on the East Coast? No, but my dad's from New York, so he's a New Yorker. He'll uh-huh. never, like, fully accept Los Angeles, you know? <laughs> yeah. He's probably lived here for longer than than there at this point, but he would never, like, think of himself as an Angelino. He's, like, a New Yorker, you know? But I think yeah. he also, like... I feel similarly. Yeah, but it's I think also, stupid, like, but... what he misses about New York is also, like, of a New York that doesn't exist anymore, which is also, like, the New York where you could be, like, a a starving artist and be mm-hmm. able to live there, you know? So I do feel like there's, like... I'm always like, well, what if you could stop that from happening in Los Angeles? We're going through it now. What if we could, like, stop the Disneyfication and, you know, make it a place that's hospitable and livable for everybody? Wouldn't that be better? Yeah, <laughs> it's nice to think of it, that possibility as, yeah. um, as opposed to yearning for a, well, a gotta, time that can never return. I got to right. plug, uh, I'm in a group called No Olympics LA um, with some other activists that are trying to stop the 2028 Los Angeles Olympics that, Is that Mayor Garcetti oh, awarded yeah. in a private vote. Um, obviously, all the ecological issues we're having right now are just a preview of things to come. So, But yeah, I, I got really into, into organizing just because I was like, journalism is so unstable. Mm-hmm. What can I do that will make me feel like involved in my city in other ways? And yeah, just organizing around housing and housing justice. And So do you think, you know, you probably get this question a lot, but Eve Babbitt's and her writing is sort of a relic from an era that's past or or something that is still salvageable? Oh, I think it's, I mean, I think it speaks to everything that's great about Los Angeles. And still. Like, still, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that like can't, you know, it. it's still here. The issue is like, will we protect it? You mm-hmm. know, I think groups like defend Boyle Heights and you know people are out there realizing that it's not just you know like there are people out here trying to actively whitewash Los Angeles and we have to like stop them it's not gonna not happen if we don't if we don't do anything they're just gonna do it I think is the issue and just making people aware of that and of what what will be lost and you know I love Jane, Jane Jacobs who wrote The Life and Death of American Cities and who helped save Greenwich Village you know she writes a lot about like the thing that people like about the neighborhood that they move to, like then gets like pushed out of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And I think that Eve writes so well about a lot of these things that like are really what, you know, she writes about just like, Oh, in LA you have these sort of like slums that you could never have in New York now. And I think that's still true. Like we, but we have a history of, of pushing back on that. So, you know, yeah, I think, and I just think, yeah, I think it speaks very directly to, the time we're in now because it's just written very timelessly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So thank you so much, Molly, for coming and speaking with us. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for you. having me. Thank you. Thank you. We've been speaking with Molly Lambert. Molly wrote the introduction to a new collection of essays by Eve Babbitts. The collection is called I Used to Be Charming, The Rest of Eve Babbitts. Thank you, Molly. Thanks.
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 